This episode of The Dig is brought to you by the listeners who support us on Patreon and by University of California Press. One title we think Dig listeners will like is Forgotten Peace, Reform, Violence, and the Making of Contemporary Colombia by Robert A. Carl. Forgotten Peace examines Colombian society's attempt to move beyond the Western Hemisphere's worst mid-century conflict and shows how that effort molded notions of belonging and understandings of the past. Robert A. Carl reconstructs encounters between government officials, rural peoples, provincial elites, and urban intellectuals during a crucial conjuncture that saw reformist optimism transform into alienation. In addition to offering a sweeping reinterpretation of Colombian history, including an incredibly detailed account of the origins of the FARC insurgency, Carl provides a Colombian vantage on global processes of democratic transition, development, and memory formation in the 1950s and 60s. Broad in scope, Forgotten Peace challenges contemporary theories of violence in Latin America as the Colombian people work today to implement peace accords. Forgotten Peace, Reform, Violence, and the Making of Contemporary Colombia by Robert A. Carl. Out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This episode is the next in our series on Latin American politics, and it's about Colombia. Under President Juan Manuel Santos, the government has reached a peace accord with the FARC rebel group, which will hopefully put an end to a half century of armed conflict involving the left-wing guerrillas, U.S.-backed government forces, right-wing paramilitaries, and drug cartels. Though other guerrillas will remain active, and the drug war will no doubt continue, the end of the war with the FARC marks a huge change for Colombians who have lived through unimaginable violence for decades. My guest is Forrest Hilton, who has taught Latin American history and politics at Harvard, Northwestern, and the Universidad de los Andes in Bogota. He currently teaches at La Universidad Nacional de Colombia Medellín. During 2016 and 17, he was a visiting scholar at the Charles Warren Center for American History at Harvard and is the author of Evil Hour in Colombia from Verso, which has been translated into Spanish, French, and Portuguese. Forrest Hilton, welcome to The Dig. Uh, thanks very much for having me. So the Colombian government has reached a peace accord with the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, and it's now being implemented. To help frame our discussion, can you explain the accords, how they were reached, and where they're out now, where they're out now, and how you see them playing out? After a civil war that lasted 50 to 60 years, depending on how you date it, um, the Colombian government and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia uh, reached an agreement after years of negotiations in Havana. Um, and for a long time, it seemed as though these accords um, were really a kind of something akin to a backroom deal between the Colombian government and the FARC. Um, but as the process dragged on and on and on, more and more uh, social movements and organizations within Colombian society uh, began to try to influence the process and discuss what it would mean to democratize the society, to demilitarize the society, to move away from armed confrontation to political confrontation. Um, and so in that sense, Colombia is living right now a moment of democratic effervescence. Um, and just, you know, literally days ago, uh, the official ceremony for the FARC laying down their arms took place. And, um, you know, now the FARC are set to, for the first time in Colombian history, enter Colombian political life as a, as a legitimate uh, organized force. Although it remains to be seen whether they will have national reach or where, whether they'll be confined to specific regions. And it also remains to be seen uh, whether um, political activists associated with the FARC are going to be 
allowed to participate in politics or whether they will be subject to extrajudicial execution uh, by the far right, as has happened so frequently in the past. And that is, uh, as you just said, in the 1980s, there was a peace process of sorts through which the FARC formed a political party, the um, Union Popular, and a huge number of their activists and candidates were, were assassinated. Uh, yes, that's right. The UP um, was subject to what has been labeled political genocide, and something on the order of 5,000 of its militants were uh, physically eliminated, mostly through extrajudicial execution between 1985 and 1991. So there is a horrible precedent for uh, the murder of um, political activists associated with the FARC in the past. However, the process of negotiations this time around in Havana was quite different from the previous process of negotiations in that there was at first a unilateral ceasefire by the FARC, which later turned into a bilateral ceasefire so that um, the war was really winding down as the negotiations really heated up. And that had not happened previously where war and peace were going on basically on parallel tracks in the 1980s. So the conditions were quite a bit different this time. And another thing that made this round of peace negotiations dramatically different from the previous round was the overwhelming support of the private sector and all of its major lobbies uh, for peace, as well as the support of the military high command. Um, so in that sense, there's a much broader consensus within different fractions of the Colombian elite on the necessity for peace. Um, and that has to do with projected investment strategies for the future and how Colombian elites imagine economic development proceeding uh, in the coming years. And from their point of view, peace is absolutely necessary to open up all sorts of new investment flows and channels. Does that mean that there's a split between sort of a latifundista mafioso sort of paramilitarist right and a more globally oriented neoliberal conservative business elite that's more oriented towards towards global capital to some degree perhaps we can make that distinction it it always tends to get very murky when you get down to the regional level uh in terms of what exactly is transnational and what exactly is local and what the links are between them. Um, but nevertheless, it is fair to say that the highest levels of Colombian economy and society linked to um, transnational circuits of uh, investment and credit um, are not as invested in um, the question of stolen lands um, and the fate of stolen lands uh, for the future um, they're really thinking about how to develop agro-industry on the largest scale possible, um, and some of that will undoubtedly take place in, in the FARC territory, in what were formerly FARC territories. Um, so the agro-industrial sort of um, large landholding model very much remains in place, and there will be islands of what are called sort of special peasant reserves um, in which a different model of sort of production and distribution and commercialization uh, of agriculture will take place. But those will basically be tiny islands surrounded by a sea of um, large scale agriculture. And a recent agricultural census was performed um, for the first time in many decades. And it showed that Colombia has one of the most unequal countrysides in the world. Um, and that inequality would seem poised to deepen in the wake of the peace process um, because there really weren't any uh, mechanisms for significant redistribution of any kind or alteration of the basic neoliberal uh, agro-export and mining export uh, model. And the FARC's idea was, you know, the model is completely unacceptable, but the only way to change that model is through politics and through electoral campaigns and through mass movements that there is no way to change the economic model through warfare. And it would seem that indeed, you know, five or six decades of armed struggle have shown that it is not possible to change the economic model 
through armed struggle, certainly not in Colombia. Um, and it remains to be seen whether it will be possible to change the economic model through uh, political struggle. And as I said before, it's not hard to imagine the FARC emerging as a very significant political force in its traditional heartlands in the southeastern lowlands, where it has long been the only government that people have ever known. Um, I would imagine that they'll be able to consolidate those bases of popular support in regions where um, they've always had strongholds, but it, it's not clear that they will be able to make real headway in Colombian cities where most Colombians live and much less in the major cities. Um, and that's kind of where the challenge lies uh, going forward for the Colombian left in the future. Um, right now, there is no broad urban left. Um, and what you have is, is a remarkably kind of fragmented panorama uh, where there are many vibrant movements um, and organizations of all kinds um, but they really don't have a sort of coherent political vehicle um, to bring them all together under the same umbrella. And it's very unlikely that any kind of political vehicle associated with the FARC is going to be up to performing that task on a national level. Um, so the Accords certainly mark uh, a new moment um, in which opposition politics is no longer going to be associated with armed struggle and therefore, it's going to be much, much more difficult for the, the ultra-right, um, the armed paramilitary right, or neo-paramilitary right, if you like, to stigmatize all social movement activists as uh, guerrillas. But that has not prevented them, uh, that is to say the armed right, from assassinating something on the order of 50 to 60 social movement leaders thus far in 2017. So, of course, um, as violence escalates against social movement leaders, particularly in the countryside, uh, it's always peasant leaders and leaders of the disappeared and leaders of victims and people who are claiming land uh, restitution rights. Uh, these are the people who are being murdered for the most part. Um, and many of them are members of Marcha Patriotica, the, uh, the political vehicle that the FARC has been trying to advance um, during the negotiations as a kind of social movement parallel to the FARC itself. Um, so a number of Macha Patriotica activists have been murdered this year, and also Congreso de los Pueblos, activists from that organization, which is associated with the other much smaller guerrilla army, the uh, National Liberation Army, currently in negotiations with the Colombian government. Um, movement activists from the Congreso de los Pueblos have also uh, been murdered um, insignificant numbers. Uh, student activists uh, have come under fire in uh, the past, you know, six or seven months. So the task of building an urban left is a very significant one. And one of the things that we'll have to address is the relationship between city and country. Um, the armed left, I mean, the armed right, excuse me, the armed right is not nearly as strong um, in cities, or it's not as organized in cities as it is in the countryside. Um, in the wake of paramilitary demobilizations, most paramilitary organizations essentially just morphed into a kind of um, mafia, tributary sort of formation built upon extortion and the charging of taxes for everything under the sun. And these organizations do operate in peripheral neighborhoods in the cities but they don't really have kind of a coherent counterinsurgent politics as they did in the period before their demobilization under President Alvaro Uribe. So where we see the armed right most active is in the countryside um, where the issue of land, stolen land, and the possibility of restitution of stolen land um, is essentially a powder keg. Um, so... I guess we can make some kind of distinction between um, uh, an armed right that's much more rooted at this point in rural areas, although it has ties, you know, this armed right always has ties to urban centers of um, credit and finance and so forth. But nevertheless, there is a fraction much more closely linked to things like cattle ranching um, and, and kind of local level power structures that is very much against the peace accords, that is very much against the reincorporation of the FARC into national political life. 
And then I think another sort of pillar of the established order that has to be addressed is the media and the extent to which um, the far right is able to um, access media, uh, the private media that matters here in Colombia and get its message out um, and have that message repeated incessantly such that even in cities uh, that have been relatively untouched in certain ways by the armed conflict in the countryside, you nevertheless find um, people just sort of essentially repeating right-wing talking points about the danger of peace with the FARC. Um, and on the day that, that the FARC handed in its arms, I mean, it's, it's difficult to know, and anecdotal evidence is certainly not sufficient, but a very significant proportion of Colombians let's say something on the order of the proportion that did not vote, um, was not even very interested uh, on the day that arms were handed in by the FARC because they were much more interested in whatever soccer game happened to be going on at the moment. So there's certainly a sector of Colombian society that's completely disengaged from all of this, and it's a fairly large sector, um, and it's concentrated quite heavily in the cities. So. In terms of how things play out going forward, much is going to depend on the ability of, uh, of an urban left to come together and um, to, to build a coalition um, that would be independent of President Santos or the Liberal Party machine. That disengagement that you speak of in, in cities, is that a result of policies under Uribe that successfully inoculated cities from the violence of the war while, while deepening it in the countryside? Certainly, certainly Uribe's policies, um, you know, of quote unquote democratic security backed by the United States and Plan Colombia, um, encourage people to disengage to a large degree from that reality to dedicate themselves to the pleasures of consumerism and uh, debt, and um, to sort of leave the war in the hands of the experts. Um, and, you know, Uribe's platform was very hardline militarists, and, and he was able to win, um, you know, a majority of votes. So he clearly had some mandate, but, um, and, and he also had an energized base, but part of what Uribismo represented was a, a kind of disengagement with politics, with the understanding that the FARC needed to be eliminated and whatever had to be done to eliminate the FARC was simply the price that had to be paid. Um, so a kind of devil's pact with uh, paramilitarism and death squads and the, the whole dark side of Plan Colombia was struck by, a, you know, indeterminate but, but not insignificant uh, percentage of the population here under Alvaro Uribe, but I think the ground was really prepared actually in the previous administration of President Andres Pastrana, in which uh, another failed peace process uh, took place, and people became so alienated from the FARC and its tactics, particularly in the cities, and in part as a result of the kind of uh, media barrage uh, to which they were subject. Um, more and more people in the cities uh, began to blame the FARC for kind of the entirety of the country's problems, as if the country was governed by the, by the FARC, uh, when, of course, in fact, the FARC have been a significant armed opposition group that has only ever governed locally or regionally. But nevertheless, from kind of public discourse in Colombia in the Pastrana period, you would have thought that, in fact, the FARC had been running the country for all these years, and that's why things were so bad, because um, the Colombian state, and especially its kind of right-wing paramilitary uh, cousin, were somehow able to uh, exempt themselves from scrutiny for the state and fate of the country. And really, in many ways, the FARC uh, need to look at themselves, and they have a lot uh, for which they should be held accountable um, in terms of the failed peace process under President Pastrana, uh, their tactics, including um, car bombing, borough bombing, bike bombing, uh, kidnapping that was very widespread, 
These alienated the vast majority of Colombians, and they made it very easy for a right-wing demagogue like Alvaro Uribe to campaign on what he called democratic security, um, i.e., you know, maintaining an oligarchic constitutional order uh, at all costs um, against by waging war against the FARC um, on a on a scale and to a degree that had not been done before. Um, and with a backing from the U.S. that had not existed before. So I think that in many ways, you know, people, the, the apathy that is so widespread in cities with respect to the peace process, part of it has to do with the fatigue that sets in uh, after four years of negotiations. Um, you know, only, only the most dedicated are going to be following the ups and downs of the peace process. Um, although there is a significant minority in cities that is politically engaged in that way and that did follow the peace process very carefully. And it's fair to say that that sector of the population um, really came out quite strongly in favor of a peace agreement when the referendum uh, took place last uh, September. Um, so it's not as though in the cities uh, – you know, right-wing propaganda dominates um, unchallenged, but uh, the difficulties of contesting right-wing talking points and narratives, and above all, of building a constituency and a coalition uh, that would be significant um, in cities remains a very dramatic task um, that passes through in part, of course, um, processes of political education which are incipient at best. So in a way, everything remains to be done, but the hope among activists and militants is that this is the moment to do it. Um, yes, everything remains to be done, but now it is finally possible to begin doing it. Um, there's a sense in which the ending of armed struggle means that clearly other things are gonna to have to take priority from here on out, and um, that can only be a good thing. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. Hey, this is Larry Website, The Dig's new Postmaster General. Our show, which tells the stories from the front lines of American class warfare and international politics, are made possible by the listeners who support us on Patreon.com. If you haven't yet, please go to Patreon.com, search for The Dig, and make a contribution. Even a few bucks a month goes a really long way. Only through donations to our Patreon and class struggle can the best of us emerge. Back to the show. Alvaro Uribe's defense minister was Juan Manuel Santos, who is currently the president carrying out the peace accords, and Uribe has become the leader of a um, harsh right-wing anti-peace movement against Santos. Who who is Santos, and 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 what is the origin of this this split on the right between him? and Uribe? Well, Juan Manuel Santos comes from a very important oligarchic media family that up until very recently owned Colombia's leading daily newspaper. It's a family that's closely associated with the Liberal Party. El Tiempo. El Tiempo, that's right. And it's very it's a family that's very closely associated with the Liberal Party, and it's a family that has produced a number of presidents. The Liberal Party dominated Colombian politics in the second half of the 20th century, and so Santos is part of essentially a political dynasty that is also a media dynasty and very much within the tradition of um, sort of top-down oligarchic liberalism in Colombia. And, you know, it's, it's fairly well known that Santos, since he was quite young, has not only been dreaming of being president, but being a president who's going to go down in history. Um, and in that sense, Santos is very much a man of the 20th century insofar as going down in history is important to him. Um, and he still believes that, you know, some such thing exists and that, you know, it's worth going down in history. So he staked all of his political capital on this peace process. At this point, he has very little political capital left. Um, his government is not particularly popular. And, um, quite recently the, uh, the prosecutor in charge of anti-corruption is has been charged uh, on corruption for corruption, <laughs> and um, 
Santos's former vice minister of defense, Gustavo Villegas, uh, has just been arrested for his ties to kind of right-wing politics and organized crime nexus in Medellin, where he was the uh, secretary of security for the municipal government and apparently um, appears to have been involved in a great deal of wheeling and dealing between um, top mafia bosses and um, the municipal government. So the question is, you know, Santos, okay, so he followed the hard right-wing politics of Uribe closely, um, you know, the person who served under him at the Ministry of Defense uh, is now under arrest. And, you know, you can see kind of throughout the Colombian political and judicial system, the number of, of officials at every level of government in both judicial and legislative branches in jail or uh, on the lam, it runs into the hundreds, if not the thousands. Um, so, you know, there's a widespread sense or perception that corruption has reached new heights under Santos. And because Colombia was an astonishingly corrupt country before, it's very difficult to know if that's true. But certainly the perception is that um, corruption is, is running rampant, that um, Santos is no longer really in control of this peace process. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty about what comes next and how this is going to play out. Um, and I think Santos understood, first of all, Santos is, um, is a shrewd opportunist. And so under Alvaro Uribe, he, he certainly appeared to be a defender of the faith, uh, as one would expect Uribe's minister of defense to be. Um, and as soon as he had won the elections, he began to distance himself from Uribe because clearly his way of going down in history was by making peace with the FARC. Um, and Santos set about doing that fairly quickly after killing the FARC's top commander, who would have been the logical choice to negotiate a peace process. Um, so Santos has clearly had peace in mind. Uh, if not before he got elected, certainly after he got elected, and peace as the road to go down in history as, you know, one of Colombia's most important presidents. And uh, it would seem that he has certainly guaranteed that at the very least, although much will depend on how the peace process plays out and whether it unravels uh, in a kind of eerie parallel to what happened in Guatemala in the 1990s, where the peace process was also subject to a referendum, it was rejected, and then it was kind of resubmitted um, through official channels and a watered down version uh, eventually approved, leading to you know an incredibly high murder rate and the proliferation of organized crime in parts of Guatemala that had not experienced it before, um, and the general kind of gangsterization of everyday life in Guatemala that followed the peace accords. Um, it seems fairly likely that Colombia will repeat kind of the uh, Guatemalan precedent, but much of that is going to depend on what the left is able to do and the extent to which um, it's possible in the current conjuncture to build an urban left. Because it needs to be said that in the countryside, there are tremendous levels of organization among Afro-Colombians, indigenous Colombians, uh, mixed-race Colombians of all different backgrounds, um, through mostly through peasant unions um, and other social movement organizations. Uh, and the cities really can't even compare um, in, in, in terms of both organization and general political sophistication to the kind of movements that we find in the countryside. So the urban left really has its work cut out for it, and there's a sense of excitement that the time is now. Um, but there is a lot of fear, uncertainty, as well as skepticism about what can actually be accomplished. Um, but I think it's worth saying that it would be a terrible tragedy if Colombia were to follow Guatemala's path, given that hopes and expectations have been raised in the course of this peace process. And if those hopes and expectations for some kind of political change, uh, if those are hopes and expectations are dashed, um, you know, the panorama will be extremely dark. Um, and, you know, one can only imagine a proliferation of cynicism 
which is the last thing that Colombia needs after such a lengthy civil war. Um, and there are powerful currents pushing against that kind of um, outcome, but it's just not clear how much um, leverage they're going to have going forward. And the the side pushing cynicism obviously has a lot of momentum as well, um, because as you mentioned, the referendum on the peace accords did go down to a narrow defeat last October. Explain explain how that happened. Well, I mean, I think sometimes parallels with the United States are useful. Um, sometimes they're not. But if you look at sort of the, the Trump-Clinton deadlock, um, Colombia is similar in that the the hard right organized by ex-president Alvaro Uribe and any number of other figures uh, who have regional power bases, um, that that right is, is capable of mobilizing uh, a kind of militant base that is slightly out of proportion to, you know, actual numbers in the overall population. But nevertheless, I mean, they can get people out and they did get people out and they did so through a relentless campaign of um, sort of fear driven lies and distortions that really resonated with people. Um, so they've done the same, you know, now that the, the peace is actually taking place. The idea is to convince people that, you know, Colombia is headed towards uh, sort of some kind of Venezuelan or Cuban style uh, state-led socialism. And obviously, I mean, the disconnect from reality is, uh, it would be <laughs> under Santos. <laughs> yeah. It would be comic. And if it weren't so kind of devastating and didn't have such, um, you know, violent consequences. Um, but you know, the idea is the idea that the hard right promotes endlessly and to some degree successfully is that Santos has handed over the main interests of the country to the allies of, you know, Castro and Chavez, and that he's essentially sold the country down the river. He sold it out to the communists and, uh, you know, Colombia's future, therefore, is going to be bleak. Now, I mean, it's it's again, it's it's not always clear how the the different sections of capital stack up around these questions. Alvaro Uribe obviously has been linked to lots of um, multinational and transnational interests, as well as the more kind of local and regional interests that are rooted in um, in the land and, and large-scale landholdings. So when Uribe mobilizes his base and he mobilizes this block against the peace process, I mean, of course, all the land, the large landholders who want to hold on to their lands, they certainly mobilize. Um, and even though the Cattlemen's Association is officially in favor of the peace process, you know, uh, unofficially, locally and regionally, member many branches of the Cattlemen's Association mobilize against the peace process. Um, so at the highest levels. Um, of, of politics and society. Certainly the Colombian elite is in favor of the peace process, but um, at the more intermediate levels and lower levels, the Colombian elite is not in favor of the peace process. And this message that the FARC are going to get away with murder, that the FARC are essentially going to get paid for the crimes that they committed, um, you know, as with any message, if it's, if it's diffused widely enough and repeated often enough, some sectors of the population are obviously going to believe it. And my sense, although it's difficult to, to prove with any certainty, is that um, marginal sort of um, informal proletariat in the, in the peripheral uh, neighborhoods of cities, very vulnerable to that message. Um, they don't have access to a lot of alternative sources of information. They basically rely on what they get from the two main Colombian TV channels. Uh, they do not read newspapers. Um, and so that's where this message that the peace process is essentially a sellout to the communists seems to find, um, you know, a, a pretty receptive audience that is not being exposed to any other narratives of, of what happened or, or why. So, um, you know, the, the skill of Uribe's right-wing demagoguery and 
the ability of, of, of what remains of Uribe's kind of uh, electoral machinery um, can never be underestimated. Uh, whenever you think that Uribe and the hard right is really on its last legs or kind of against the ropes, they always come back and they always come back strong. So to some degree, that's what happened in the referendum on the peace process. Everybody thought that Santos was going to win that by a significant margin, um, but it turns out that Uribe campaigned against it incredibly effectively. Um, and so, you know, presumably they're going to continue to uh, orient their politics uh, on the far right against the peace and the peace process. And in fact, they've said that if they can get if they get elected in 2018, the first thing they're going to do is tear up the peace accords altogether. Um, what that would mean is not clear, or even how they would do that is not clear. But I think it's fair to take them at their word. Um, if they get elected, undoubtedly they will try to um, dismantle the peace process. Um, so, again, there's an awful lot of uncertainty about what comes next, and there can be little question that the hard right is going to be running in 2018 on the idea that the peace process is the worst thing to uh, to have ever happened to the country and that, you know, it's necessary to really, uh, you know, wipe out, you know, whatever remnants of the FARC remain. I mean, that's that's the scenario that seems most likely um, ahead of the 2018 elections. Again, it doesn't matter uh, how disconnected from reality these narratives are. Um, it matters how much these how much and how widely these narratives can be diffused. Uh, particularly amongst um, the population of the urban peripheries, which would generally tend to be apathetic um, in elections, general elections, as well as things like referendums. But, um, you know, Uribe was fairly successful at mobilizing these folks um, in the referendum, and there's no reason to think that he wouldn't be able to do so in a uh, general election as well. So to some degree, Colombian politics is deadlocked between kind of, uh, I guess we could say, neoliberal centrist forces um, that are able to incorporate a very fragmented uh, left into, you know, it, into its orbit, um, and then a much, uh, hard, much harder right block rooted in the Catholic Church and, and uh, rural and um, regional local power structures and patterns of land tenure as well as um, important elements within the military. Um, and that block is going to continue to remain strong enough to obstruct um, you know, any kind of real transformation. But what's interesting about the peace accords to some degree is that no real transformation was contemplated in them. Um, and the FARC recognized that they weren't holding enough cards to negotiate the economic model and that any negotiation of the model would have to come after they laid down their arms and participated in politics. So in that sense, regardless of what happens next, we are in uh, a genuinely new phase um, of Colombian history. And there is a sense that this is not just more of the same, whatever continuities may exist that you know, something genuinely new is in the air, or at least um, becomes possible at this moment. And so for uh, Uribe and the hard right, they seem to be, um, maybe not without reason, to, to believe that delegitimizing the pre peace process is their ticket back to power. Right now, they're arguing seemingly without any basis that the FARC is, is hiding hiding weapons, um, that they are not turning over their entire um, arsenal. Yeah, they will continue to, um, to campaign on the idea that, you know, the FARC are secretly doing X or Y, uh, in spite of the fact that all of the FARC's major figures are now publicly um, campaigning politically in one way or another. Um, you know, the hard right is not going to let go of the narratives that it's mobilized so successfully in the past. And, you know, it just remains to be seen uh, how much they, or how successfully they will be able to play on people's fears um, and how much they can divorce those fears from the reality of what's actually happening in the country. But my sense of things is that 
it's much easier for the right than it is for kind of the uh, allies of Santos in the elections in 2018, insofar as the right is going to do everything it can to upset the peace accords or to make them inviolable, um, particularly, as I said, in, in the countryside. And um, then they're going to say, see, the peace accords didn't work. The peace accords have been a disaster. So in a certain way, um, you know, undermining the peace process at the regional and local level to the extent that they can um, is a fairly effective tactic because then it allows them to delegitimize the peace process as a whole in the run up to the 2018 elections and say, you know, we, we were never for the peace process. Uh, it's clear the peace process hasn't worked and, you know, we need to try a different approach. I mean, what it would mean to go to go to war again with the FARC, given that the FARC are no longer a guerrilla army, is, is not clear. Um, but the, the kind of relationship between reality and representation may not be that important. Uh, what's important for Uribe and the former, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Procurador General de la Nación. Um, the, prosecute, the attorney general? That's right. The former attorney general uh, and Uribe and uh, former minister of defense, um, they, uh, they have a very clear strategy for returning to power. And so that's really what matters. What they do once they get back into power um, would be anyone's guess, but they do have a clear strategy for returning to power. And I think, again, that's where um, it remains to be seen whether an urban left can come together um, and uh, now is certainly the time because otherwise it's certainly possible that in 2018, the hard right will return to power. One other point about the Colombian hard right um, for which I think U.S. comparisons might prove useful is the issue of social conservatism, specifically um, the uh, issue of, of sort of fomenting this hysteria around gay rights. Um, Recently, a right-wing senator um, named Maria Fernanda Caval accused the United Nations, which is overseeing the disarmament, of having a left-wing bias and specifically being part of a gay lobby, which I think is uh, has its roots in this is this campaign against Santos's education minister, who is openly gay, and all this hysteria created around the family values hysteria created around her? That is the, that's a sort of very new gift that has kept on giving since they discovered it. Um, they really hammered home the point that these peace accords, uh, sort of secretly behind everyone's back under the table, were going to undermine structures of patriarchal authority, uh, through what they called the ideology of gender. Um, that's how the hard right refers to, to, to the provisions in the peace accord that deal with uh, gender and sexuality and women's rights. Now, the ironic thing is that uh, there was tremendous struggle within the FARC itself uh, over, you know, the issue of gender and sexuality. And it was really through the efforts largely of Victoria Sandino, who was the FARC's only top a uh, woman negotiator in Havana. It was largely through her efforts that um, these issues of gender and sexuality were addressed in the peace accords at all. And in addition to Victoria Sandino's own personal commitment to these issues, she was really serving also as a spokesperson and a channel for grievances and demands that were coming from, you know, the FARC's base of, of soldiers and mid-level commanders, um, the women among them, for, uh, you know, greater gender equality in the peace, um, there is significant gender equality in the FARC or has been uh, under war and in some ways more so than the rest of Colombian society. Um, but the question of what that's going to look forward, look like after the war was very much an open question. And it was through essentially struggle within the FARC uh, between men and women that uh, these issues were even part of the peace process itself. So it's hard to think of anything more progressive in the context of the FARC than the kind of struggle that Victoria Sandino was waging to get women's rights and issues of sexuality addressed. Um, 
And yet the far right took that and ran with it. And they have been incredibly successful um, at convincing people that there's some real threat to uh, Colombian patriarchal society, which is, again, ironic if you if you look at the consequences of patriarchy in Colombian society and the kind of horrific violence that Colombia has, has suffered in the past uh, 30 or 40 years and how much of that violence has had a specifically gendered component, um, you know, your average Colombian would seem to have a great deal to benefit uh, from the dismantling of these patriarchal structures. Um, they would seem to be a threat to people's health and well-being. But nevertheless, um, the Catholic Church and a new player, the evangelical churches, which, um, you know, the evangelical churches uh, are often linked to crime in different ways uh, here in Colombia. Um, you know, they've been incredibly successful uh, with these sort of fear-mongering campaigns. Um, it's hard to know if they can continue to campaign successfully on that issue, given that, you know, you can only cry wolf so many times before people are no longer scared. Um, but, um, well, in the, in the U S the few times, so many times, uh, turned out to be quite a few decades of, um, social conservative dog whistling or bullhorning as it were. That's true. And it's certainly, it's certainly conceivable in Colombia that they will be able to continue with it, but it might be something that they were able just to use, you know, sort of conjuncturally, I guess, I guess we'll see. But again, a lot of that is going to depend on the strength of organizing, um, among the LGBTQ community. And, um, and the urban left more generally. Um, so I hate to keep coming back around to the, the one size fits all solution, but it's very hard to see without some kind of broad urban left in Colombia that has not existed since the 1940s. Really, there were shades of it probably in the 1970s and eighties, but there hasn't been a vibrant and powerful urban left in Colombia since the 1940s. Um, and in the 1940s, Colombia was still a massively rural country, and today it is an overwhelming urban country, and it, it very desperately needs a left to match it. And it's certainly fair to say that were such an urban left to materialize, it would, um, it would be a real shot in the arm to the rural left, uh, which has existed through thick and thin somehow uh, decade after decade. Um, and has been very much kind of left alone, um, isolated and uh, fragmented. So a lot remains to be done, but as I've said repeatedly in this interview, um, there is a great deal of, of hope and expectation left, and there is a real sense of democratic effervescence of a sort that I haven't seen in Colombia in the 20 years that I've been coming and going. I do want to ask you about that history of which you've written about quite a bit. You've written about the sort of the historic weakness of the left in Colombia by comparison to other countries throughout the region. And you write that that's in part because the Colombian left, the FARC and the Colombian Communist Party in particular, has made history and circumstances not of its own choosing, but partly of its own making, consistently betting on a strategy of armed insurrection based in the countryside. What were the circumstances that the Colombian left faced, and what was the left's analysis of those circumstances that led them to prioritize rural armed struggle? And then how did that backfire? Well, um, I'll try to answer that as briefly as I can. That's a very, um, it's a complex history, and it's a, it's a complex question. I think the best- And you wrote a great article about it that uh, listeners should check out. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, so- well, what I would say, though, in response is that um, at the moment that rural armed struggle emerged in the 1940s, it emerged at a time of um, partisan strife uh, approaching the U.S. Civil War levels of partisan strife between liberals and conservatives in Colombia, um, uh, a sectarian war that left 300,000 people dead, 80% um, of them were, were illiterate peasant males. So the FARC emerged out of that kind of uh, matrix of incredibly fratricidal civil war between liberals and conservatives. The FARC were kind of, in some ways, uh, before they were the FARC, they were a sort of left-wing component 
of the liberal strategy of conservative dictatorship. Um, and the FARC really started out uh, as a series of self-defense militias by um, different peasant organizations. Um, and so eventually, uh, as the Cuban Revolution took place, right, the Korean War, the Cuban Revolution, um, armed insurrection came to be seen more and more uh, as the way to transform oligarchic structures of state and society in Latin America. Um, so across right, the region, people were betting on a strategy of rural guerrilla warfare at a time where Latin America was still, in fact, uh, dramatically rural. Um, and so to some degree, that strategy and those tactics did make sense uh, in the 50s and 60s. And to some degree, that strategy and those tactics were forced upon the Colombian left in that period um, by the Colombian state and by the patterns of warfare between its two main political parties. Um, but decade after decade of betting on rural insurrection when uh, demographic, economic, social, and cultural conditions in the country had changed so dramatically, turned the FARC into something of an anachronism. Um, and the FARC became progressively cut off from the rest of Colombian society in the 1990s um, as peace processes took place in Central America. Um, you know, it, it was... Uh, really only the FARC and the ELN left in Latin America, that the whole entire period of guerrilla insurgency that began before the Cuban Revolution and lasted through the Central American processes had come to an end, and Colombia was the only country left uh, where armed struggle seemed to be the name of the game on the left. And throughout the 1990s, both the FARC and the ELN expanded very dramatically uh, in military and territorial terms, but they were unable to match those gains with any kind of political gains. And in that sense, they just became progressively isolated from progressive currents in uh, Colombian society in the cities. Um, so there was just- and the, civilian, and the civilian left was collateral damage of this that, process. That's right. The civilian left was collateral damage. Uh, the armed insurgencies were never able to provide any kind of real security or protection for the militants and activists who were stigmatized as being guerrilla supporters and then murdered extrajudicially for, for unproven allegations. Um, so the guerrilla movements expanded and so did the attacks on social movement leaders and certainly there was nothing the guerrilla movements um, could do to prevent that. And in many ways, uh, they had a very instrumentalist approach to social movement organizations, which was, um, we can sum it up in. In, in terms of, you know, the more the hard right murders social movement organization leaders, the more the leaders who are still alive are going to be convinced that armed struggle is the way to go. Um, you know, increased repression is going to favor an insurrectionary project. That didn't turn out to be that true. That is grim. Yeah, that didn't turn out to be true, but it, it, it seems likely that that was the assumption that they were operating on. Um, so... That was an incredibly dark period, uh, the 1990s. And of course, as the guerrilla movements expanded dramatically and as they kind of uh, upped the ante in terms of the kind of terrorist tactics they were using, car bombs and whatnot, um, that obviously gave uh, the armed right, the paramilitary death squad right, um, the shot in the arm that it needed to get its own act together and to get organized on a national level. and. Uh, that's when Plan Colombia uh, came into effect and eventually, and essentially broke the deadlock between the Colombian government and the FARC. And, um, you know, that's how we got to where we are today. Hey, this is Dan Denver, the host of The Dig, which you probably already knew because you're listening to The Dig. Anyhow, I need your support to keep this going. So please go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com look up the dig and make a contribution even a little bit helps but a lot helps a little bit more either way thank you and back to the show
two uh, subjects that we haven't touched on yet that I'd like to ask you about before we finish up. One is obviously the the illicit drug trade, specifically the rise of a huge cocaine export economy beginning in the 1970s and then the drug war um, over that that illicit drug market has profoundly warped Colombian society, economy, and politics um, over the past nearly, I guess, half past half century. Where, what is the current state of the drug trade and the drug war in the country? Um, and how do they influence what, what Colombia is today? Yeah, the, the business um, continues to thrive. Um, and, and that seems to be uh, a constant. It was a constant in the 80s as, uh, you know, the DEA ramped up its efforts to extradite uh, Pablo Escobar and his associates. Um, and it's the case today that the business survives and thrives. Um, and that is independent of whatever particular repressive strategy is being employed at the moment. Because, of course, uh, strategies of repression have to evolve uh, almost as quickly as uh, business strategies for avoiding repression evolve. Um, so the drug business has just become much, much more sophisticated. It's become much more decentralized. Um, in Colombia, uh, the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico has a number of sort of links, direct links with um, different groups that operate throughout the country. So to some degree, Certain fractions of the Colombian mafia are maybe more transnational now. Uh, they're certainly not involved in the business of getting their cocaine to the United States. They have to get it to Central America at most, um, or Mexico, um, and, and Mexicans take care of the rest. Uh, so the Colombian business, narcotics business, continues to evolve. It continues to thrive. I think the latest uh, figures are that... Um, Colombia is now far outproducing Peru in terms of coca production. Peru had displaced briefly uh, Colombia, but Colombia is back on top as the world's number one coca producer. Still produces, you know, the vast uh, majority of the cocaine that's consumed in the United States. That figure has never dropped below 90%, and it's unlikely to do so in the future. Um, in terms of the peace process and and what how, how things are playing out around the drug business. Um, there are a number of areas where the FARC have operated uh, and part of their operations have involved uh, narcotic exports on a, on a, for the most part, small scale compared to the paramilitaries. But nevertheless, there are lucrative uh, export routes and circuits that the FARC once controlled that they are no longer likely to continue controlling. And so there has been a lot of disputes among different fractions of paramilitaries, as well as between um, paramilitaries and the FARC about how uh, that's going to play out. The paramilitary groups or the neo-paramilitary groups would very much like to, um, to take over uh, the FARC's interests in the narcotics business now that the FARC is no longer in the war business. Presumably they won't need the narcotics business and that sort of opens up a vacuum of both um, territory and, uh, and power. So there's plenty of disputes taking place now over, you know, who gets to operate these routes now that the FARC are presumably out of the cocaine business. Um, and, you know, they were an important player locally and regionally, but, you know, it's hard to call the FARC a really important national player or international player in the, in, you know, the narcotics business. Um, so the narcotics business will continue on, and of course, it is the mainstay of these neo-paramilitary organizations. Uh, they depend on extortion and taxes of all kinds, but it's really, narcotics is the real moneymaker. Um, and that includes not only export, but also what they call micro-traffic or um, domestic drug distribution. So there's plenty of conflicts that take place every day throughout all of Colombia's major cities over these kind of uh, micro territories, um, you know, and there's all cities are essentially divided into these like micro fiefdoms and, and where micro sovereignty operates. Um, and that's was not discussed in the peace accords. Uh, it's not going to change as a result of the peace accords. Um, 
And there's a way in which the kind of narcotics business grinds on and on, um, regardless of what happens in terms of high politics at uh, the level of the United States empire or the Colombian state itself. Um, but again, things get very murky uh, whenever you begin to examine any concrete situation um, and the kind of neat analytical separations that, that we can make tend to get, tend to get fairly blurred. Um, so there's a lot really that remains to be seen about how the drug business is going to evolve and what, you know, former level, former mid-level commanders in the FARC who were once involved in the drug business are going to do. I mean, are they all going to become politicians? Are they all going to become farmers? Um, it's really not clear. Last but not least, speaking of that U.S. empire, the U.S. has played a uh, major longstanding role in Colombia's drug war from the DEA's war against Escobar um, in the 80s to Plan Colombia and its fight against the uh, the FARC and other guerrillas. What's the legacy of that history and what is the role, U.S. role, look like today? Well, I think the most important legacy is that, I mean, the Colombian police, the Colombian armed forces, the Colombian intelligence services, um, you know, they work hand in glove with the U.S. embassy. Um, the U.S. has pretty deep reach into these Colombian institutions and has been essential in, in the foundation and consolidation of such institutions. So, I mean, this is a history that goes back decades. And I mean, it's fair to say that the United States is uh, incredibly influential in Colombia's domestic politics and very few moves are ever taken. In fact, very few, very few moves are even contemplated without prior discussion with some um, entity of the U.S. government. Um, so I think that really the drug war has really served to undermine dramatically whatever limited sovereignty Colombia was able to exercise um, in, say, the 1960s or 1970s, uh, when a phase of national capitalist development uh, based on a kind of light Keynesianism uh, was dominant. Um, again, and Colombia was hardly a sovereign state in that period. It was a very close ally of the United States and the entire national security state that was built during that period was, uh, was an effect of relationship with the United States. But nevertheless, as sort of drug war militarism ramped up in the 80s and 90s, um, and then Plan Colombia. Um, Colombia is something like a semi-colony of the United States. It, it's not um, penetrated by the United States to the degree that Puerto Rico is, but um, it's certainly a much, much less sovereign country than, say, Ecuador or Bolivia or even Venezuela in its own kind of terrible way. And how does that role play out today. Um, I assume that the the peace negotiations had the support or blessing of the Obama administration. Um, I have no idea what Trump's feelings about Colombia are, but I'm guessing that he would be sympathetic to a strong man militarist like Uribe. Yeah, there's no question that the that the right celebrated Trump's election and, you know, they probably saw him as the second coming of Ronald Reagan, but I'm not sure that they're right. Uh, it's, you know, remains to be seen to what degree uh, the right in Latin America is going to be able to reverse the pink tide. There are some places where that clearly has taken place in Colombia, of course, uh, you know, the center left never came to power. So there's no question that the Colombian right believes that they have an ally in Washington now and that to some degree um, they've got a green light to destroy the peace process. Um, and it's certainly easy enough to envision um, Trump you know, celebrating someone like Uribe or any candidate that Uribe would favor. Um, at the same time, the gains in terms of investment um, that would seem to be on the table now that peace accords have been implemented 
mean that there are very powerful lobbies, uh, business lobbies that are going to be pushing for the continuity of the peace process. Um, and that's where the sort of future of investment flows is to be found in former farm territories. That's, that's the final frontier. So, um, you know, I guess there's the kind of political ideological level, and then there's the more kind of directly economic level. Um, and it's not clear how Trump is going to navigate um, those two different levels. But I wouldn't be surprised if we see more continuity than change in Trump's uh, foreign policy towards Colombia. And there might be a lot of bluster uh, in support of right-wing talking points. But the policy itself, uh, in terms of supporting peace for the sake of um, you know, more neoliberal uh, investment, um, that seems likely to stay in place. Forrest Hilton, thank you so much. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. Forrest Hilton teaches at La Universidad Nacional de Colombia, Medellín. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once reportedly said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe, and tell your friends to do so too. If it's on iTunes, leave us a pleasant review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners, which is great for us and, by extension, we hope for the world. Please make propaganda on our behalf. Also, look us up on patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search for The Dig and make a monthly contribution. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Huge.